very much for reading that. If you do have a Bible, do keep the passage open in front of you. Um, and if you've got um, one of these sheets, you'll see outline um, on the back. Um, thanks very much for the welcome, Andy. Um, and thanks very much all for coming. Uh, if you're like me, it doesn't matter how many weeks you come to church, it's always been an effort and a rush to get out on time, um, especially in the rain. So thanks for giving up of your afternoon to be here. Um, before we go any further, let's pray um, before we begin to God's word. Father, we do uh, thank you for the great truth that we've been singing about um, and the truth of your word has been read to us. And we pray that by your spirit uh, you would show us more of the Lord Jesus as we plunge into this passage. For his glory. Amen. So, Christians and church leaders talk a lot about the gospel. In fact, it's the very first thing that Andy talked about today. They talk a lot about the gospel. It's kind of a big deal, right? What God's message is to us. And I wonder if you ever wonder who gets to set that agenda? Who gets to set the agenda of what the Christian message is? Is it some Christian leader or some Christian committee uh, and does it matter if different churches preach different things? I mean, you've maybe heard different Christian leaders on the radio, on TV, maybe at different churches at school and, and, or, or as you've grown up and, and you've heard different things. And, and does it really matter if they don't teach the same gospel? I guess more personally, it, it comes to us. Does it matter what gospel we believe and what gospel, what message we live by? Paul seemed to think... It was vitally important. And then that's in fact why he's writing this letter to the churches in Galatia. He had preached the gospel to these churches in Galatia. And, and recently false teachers had come in and they had changed the message. They had altered the message that he had preached to what Paul calls in chapter 1 a different gospel. Which is actually no gospel at all. No good news. And so throughout this letter Paul is arguing for the truth of the gospel the one gospel from God. And he reminds us time and time again that there is one Christian message of good news. A gospel of truth. And as Andy reminded us at the very start of the service, a gospel of freedom. And that's what we want to explore in this passage today. So let's look at the first two verses. The unity of the gospel. The unity of the gospel. Fourteen years later, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Now, now here in chapter 2, Paul is continuing on his autobiographical account that he started in chapter 1. These false teachers who had, had come in to the churches in Galatia had started to undermine Paul's authority. It's likely that they had come from Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem was kind of a real big deal in the early church. Now, Jesus was from Galilee. He'd spent most of his time in the north of Israel. But, but all the, the big events of the Christian story had happened in Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. He was buried in Jerusalem. He was first seen alive in Jerusalem. He went back to heaven from Jerusalem. The first Christians received the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and the first church 
were started in Jerusalem. And from there, the gospel message came out. And so these false teachers who came into Galatia, they, they, they came and, and they came from Jerusalem, and they would have tried to undermine what Paul had preached in saying, now, we're coming from Jerusalem, we're, we're bringing something that has that extra weight of authority because of where we come from. And so Paul makes it very detailed notes in this letter of his trips to and from Jerusalem to show, as he showed in the previous chapter, which you've looked at before, that his gospel message didn't come from a a committee in Jerusalem, but it came from God. It didn't come from any human construct or, or any human leader, but he actually saw Jesus Christ alive. He saw that he was the risen Lord and he received his gospel from him. But, but he goes up and he says in this, in this passage what we read, he goes up because he's concerned. This second trip he takes, 14 years later, he's concerned that he may have been running or had run in vain. And I think when you first read that, it seems as if Paul's perhaps going up to get his message checked out. It seems as if Paul's now all of a sudden become a bit insecure about what he's been preaching And he feels like he has to go up to Jerusalem perhaps to get it checked with the leaders and make sure that he hasn't got it wrong. But that, of course, can't be the case because he spent so much time in chapter 1 showing us that that his gospel came directly from God. What, What his concern really is here is that the false teaching, this teaching of a different gospel that that has been spread in the churches in Galatia might have also spread in Jerusalem. And he's devoted these 14 years of preaching the gospel across modern-day Turkey. And now he's concerned that a different gospel, a false gospel, might have infected the church back in Jerusalem, the mother church. And so he's concerned to go back and make sure that their gospel presentation is clear. They're preaching the same true gospel. They're united under the one gospel. It would be a disaster, you see, for Paul if the, the Jewish church back in Jerusalem started to preach or started to lose hold of the true gospel and for the church to so be divided. You see, they were messengers from God. Notice in, in chapter 1, look back in chapter 1, verse number 1, he describes himself and, and, and the leaders in Jerusalem are the same as apostles sent not from men, nor by men, but by Jesus Christ. Like, like God's postmen, in a sense, it wasn't their job to sit down and write the letter or write the gospel or the message, but it was their responsibility to faithfully deliver it. And you can feel Paul's urgency as he goes up on this trip to Jerusalem. That it might be such a tragedy that they've changed or altered the gospel. And it is a tragedy. It is sad that today there's church leaders and those who stand in positions of responsibility and take the name of Christ. And they've altered the gospel. They've split churches and split the message to the point where it's confusing for many people. And perhaps you're here this afternoon, and you're a bit confused too. You've, you've heard some people, and they preach the Christian message, is all about loving your neighbor. And, and what we do with 
uh, with our morality and, and our, our sexual ethics and what we believe about the truth of Jesus Christ and whether the resurrection actually happened or not doesn't really matter. What matters is how we treat one another. Or maybe a, a different sort of gospel that other so-called Christian leaders will preach is, is that being a Christian is really about the ordinances of the church of going through confession, communion, All of these different messages can seem confusing. And what it means to be a Christian and what the heart of the Christian message is can be lost. And Paul's showing us that it's vital that we get the gospel right. It's vital that we don't rely on what a particular church says or a particular pastor or a particular bishop, no matter how he's dressed. But that we strive we run, as he uses the metaphor, to, to get the gospel of God right and that we're united no matter where we are under the one gospel of God. But why does it matter? Why all this effort, Paul? Why are you going up to Jerusalem and making such a song and dance about getting us all on the one page? Is it really that important? Well, that's what we're going to see now in verse number three to five. The truth of the gospel. Hmm. Verse number three. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. In this little section, verses three to five, Paul takes a kind of a sidestep, kind of like a parenthesis from his reporting of the meeting that he was going to have with the church leaders in Jerusalem. And, and in this little sidestep, he kind of highlights the particular issue that was threatening to divide the church at this time. This, this other gospel that was being taught, we start to see some of the elements of it. And it went something a bit like this. These, um, the, the, these false teachers were coming from a Jewish background and they were preaching that there was a responsibility on the, on the, on the Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, to keep the Old Testament law, both to become a Christian and also to experience the full Christian lifestyle. I mean, the Old Testament was full of really clear instructions of how to live. It, it came from God. And he gave clear instructions about what foods to eat, what not to eat, what clothes to wear. And, and he gave ordinances like circumcision to show that they were the people of God. He gave that to Abraham to show they were the people of God. And, and surely you can't be a, a true and proper follower of God if you're not going to keep hold of all these things. I mean, they've been there for centuries is probably what those false teachers would have argued. It's, it's reasonable, right? All the first Christians were Jews. All the first Christian men would have been circumcised. Surely you can't just give that all up. And perhaps on purpose, as a test case, as Paul goes up to Jerusalem, he brings this young Gentile uncircumcised Christian with him. Titus and there was obviously this element within the church there in Jerusalem that were pressurizing for Titus to be circumcised I mean they were 
he says they, they, they had infiltrated, they were like covert spies, assimilated and integrated into the church, and they were just pressurizing, appearing to be genuine, for Titus to be circumcised. But not for a minute, not for a second, not even for a moment, Paul says, would he give in to their demands. He would not concede. He would not let Titus be circumcised by those who said he had to. Yes, Paul understood that that if Titus and the other Gentiles kept the Old Testament law, it would make relationships with with the old Jewish establishment a lot better. It would make the Christians more popular with the synagogue, and and goodness knows it would stop the persecution that the old Jewish guard was imposing on the new Christian groups. But no, not for a moment would he concede to their pressurizing for Titus to be circumcised because it would undermine what he calls the truth of the gospel. You see, to suggest that faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection as a rescue for us, needs something added to it. To, to, to suggest that it, it needs to be supplemented is to take away from it. To say that there's, a, there's, a, there's something that we need to add to give us a right standing before God or a, or a fuller status before God, we lose the truth of the gospel. Nothing can be added to it without, in fact, taking away from it. And although far from the Jewish lifestyle, like these subtle spies, we can so quickly and easily add to the gospel. We, we can build a sense of, of expectations of what it looks like to be a mature Christian or a full-on Christian, and, and that gives us an easy way to condemn or look down on others and, and induce kind of feelings of guilt for others for their Christian walk. But yet this test case of Titus shows us that the radical implications of the gospel, that we're fully saved, fully cleansed, fully accepted before God, not through religious observance, but through Jesus Christ, even the struggling, flaky, true believer. But the, the trouble wasn't just that, that this faction were adding to the gospel, but it's, it's why they were doing that too. The truth of the gospel was, was, was also calling on, on, on these Jewish Christians to make a break from their past and their culture. It was going to be really hard to be a Christian Jew in Jerusalem. You were going to become very distinct. So whenever this Gentile like Titus came along, you would have to accept him as one who was fully one of the family of God. And, and that was going to irk and anger your, your, your family, it's probably going to irk and anger your workmates. It was going to anger your your leaders, your lecturers. You were going to have to meet with these other Gentiles and and, and worship Jesus as Lord. That wasn't going to sit comfortably in Jerusalem. The truth of the gospel demanded them to make that break. And so it became a kind of easy way out to kind of try and make the Christian message just that bit more Jewish. So it wouldn't create any friction in Jerusalem. And maybe you've felt that as well. It's hard to live in London distinctly because of the truth of the gospel. It's easy for us to add to the gospel, not maybe the legalism that these Jews wanted to add, where we add sort of religious observance, but it's easy to add a license 
to ignore sin, to, to fit in more comfortably. We need to break, not from a, a culture of, of sort of Jewish beliefs, but, but one where, where sin's just laughed at and not taken seriously. Where the things that God hates are actually, in our London, things to be desired. It's much easier just to go with the flow. And, and, and whether it's to jump on the career bandwagon, where company loyalty and career advancement means that we trample over people, we, we gossip, we undermine co-workers, or we turn a blind eye to greed or dishonesty. It, it, it's easy to, to, to undermine the truth of the gospel to, to help us to fit in. And for these guys in Jerusalem, it meant adding Jewish legalism. And, and for us, it might mean a lifestyle that just adds license. So to fit. But we see here, why Paul is so keen to contest for the truth of the gospel. Because in it, see, verse number four, he describes it as a freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. A freedom in the truth of the gospel. Look back at chapter one. In chapter one, verse three and four, Paul summarizes the gospel by saying this. It's the gospel, he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Do you see the freedom that's in that gospel? The truth of that gospel? It's not a message of becoming a better person, of becoming a more complete or kinder person through seven steps or through any religious observance. But it's a message about a God who gives himself for sinful, unworthy, weak individuals. It's a message of freedom. A freedom from expectations to be a certain way. A freedom from guilt of, of sins done in the past, of, of mistakes made. It's a, it's a message of freedom from, from weakness at unsuccessfully and consistently making the same mistakes over and over again. The, the, the one gospel, this gospel of a God who gives himself for our sins to rescue us, frees us. And as soon as we change that gospel, as soon as we add to that gospel, it becomes a slavery and the freedom is lost. You see, Paul has come to Jerusalem to get the whole church under this one gospel because there is a truth in the gospel that if altered becomes no gospel at all. And through that truth there is a freedom. I wonder if you've ever thought about the gospel like that before. I wonder if you've actually heard a different gospel all your life. One where it's about becoming more religious, not one where God rescues You've maybe even been in churches for years and, and you're a Christian, all right, but, and you're busy serving, but the idea of the gospel being freedom isn't one that springs to mind. As you consider the gospel as described here as God who gives himself for our sins, rejoice in the freedom that that brings. So back then to the last section, verses 6 to 10, partners in the gospel. 
know, since last time the clock's gone, I presume that was Andy's doing. <laughs> Verses 6 to 10, partners in the gospel. So we've had that little sidestep where he deals with this issue of Titus, which shows us what's going on. But back to the big gun meeting, okay? So Peter comes up, and James and John are at Jerusalem, and Paul comes up to meet them. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the whole way through... Uh, each time Paul refers to the leaders in Jerusalem, he's slightly ironic. I mean, if he wasn't Paul, I would almost say he was slightly naughty. He says in verse number two, those who seem to be leaders, or verse number six, those who seemed to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Or again in verse number nine, those reputed to be pillars. You see, Paul's own authority was probably being undermined by these false teachers because they came from Jerusalem and claimed to come from the kind of ultra-apostles, ultra-leaders up at Jerusalem. These false teachers would have sort of indicated that at Jerusalem, that's where the real decisions happened. But Paul recognizes, yes, they are leaders. He calls them that. But also with his irony, he reminds us that they're not the ones who have ultimate authority. For the gospel stems from God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in effect, and it's always good to remember as he reminds us in verse 6, that God doesn't take into account human credentials. But here in this section, verse 6 to 10, Paul dismantles the claim that the church leaders of Jerusalem preached a different gospel. He says in verse number 6, they added nothing no, not nothing, absolutely nothing to my message. In fact, the very opposite is true. They were perceptive enough to, to recognize that in the same way Peter was spearheading, spearheading the gospel mission to the Jews, Paul and his missionary band were taking the same gospel, entrusted by the same God, empowered by the same God, to the rest of the nations across the Roman Empire. So what's the implications of, of this conclusion? Well, I guess it was going to look very different, wasn't it? Peter was recognized as, as going to the Jews. And, and by and large, they are people who would have kept the Old Testament laws. They would have only ate kosher food. They would have only worn certain garments all the way the Old Testament um, sort of stipulated. And, and Peter would look pretty similar to that if he was taking the gospel to them. On the other hand, Paul was going to go to the Gentiles. Now, they're a bunch of... Idol worshippers, they would have ate, you know, hot dogs and pork. And, and Peter probably would have done a lot of similar, Paul would have done a lot of similar things whenever he was trying to take the gospel to them. And, and perhaps Peter would have went to the Jewish religious festivals and Paul might have skipped them. And so the two gospel missions would have looked slightly different. But yet it was the one same gospel of truth, the gospel of freedom. And there's a deep bond between the men here, isn't there? Symbolized by what they refer to in verse number nine as the right hand of fellowship. And it's almost like they've been gripped by the truth of the gospel, by the freedom in the gospel. And there's nothing quite like it. They're now going to go out as partners for the gospel. And it's going to look different. And maybe it does look different for, for each of us. You know, to speak love and care to that friend who's, who's crippled with the slavery of, of chasing after a romantic relationship. To, to listen carefully to them 
and to gently point them to the God who has given himself for them. That might look different to spending time with the, with the Muslim lady who, who eats very different food and you have to dress a certain way, maybe even learn parts of a different language in order to point her to the truth and freedom of the gospel. Those two things are going to look different. And it's going to look different again, inviting your, your colleague along to Christianity Explored or having a beer with a guy after basketball. All of these different avenues will look different, but it's the one gospel, the gospel of truth, the gospel of freedom. And what a privilege it is to be partners for that gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Paul, although not a very strong or physically imposing man, fought and fought hard for the truth of the gospel that it might remain to us. And we now, 19 centuries later, have in our hands your word delivered faithfully. And your gospel, and in it the freedom that we can have in Christ. We thank you for him and for your truth. And we pray that it would grip us this evening. And it would rejoice, and we would rejoice in the truth of it. Amen. It's always good to consider how we might respond personally ourselves to hearing God's word being taught. To that gospel freedom that we've just been hearing about, how are you going to respond today? And maybe some of us here need to respond appropriately as for the first time, to know the freedom we can know in the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel that he gave himself for our sins. But I guess in the words of our last song here, many of us will want to respond with these kind of words, with this kind of response. And that is purely praise, thanks for all that God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse